Decision-making is something universal within the human experience. How is it that a Christian is supposed to find wisdom and answers in a world that provides so many options? This question is not new to humanity's situation in the world, but indeed has been around for quite some time. Welcome to Every Last Word, a radio and internet program with Dr. Philip Ryken, teaching the whole Bible to change your whole life. Today we continue our verse-by-verse study in the book of Jeremiah by looking at what kind of wisdom God has for His people when they're confronted with difficult decisions they have to make. Phil, when we're confronted with spiritual danger or difficult circumstances, what's the most appropriate way to pray for God's guidance? Well, Mark, you know, that's a great question to ask about the book of Jeremiah, because Jeremiah was confronted with so many spiritual dangers and difficult circumstances. And he's a great example for us of having a worshipful openness to God and to whatever God in his wisdom has planned for us. And one thing we could perhaps add, an advantage we have that Jeremiah didn't have, is our ability to pray in Jesus' name in an explicit way, trusting in our Savior to provide for us in every need in any circumstance. Well, how indeed can we be more like Jeremiah, to stand up for truth in the midst of significant opposition? Mark, I think that's something we've been seeing all the way through the book of Jeremiah. Here's an example of a man who had the courage to stand. And he had the courage, by the grace of God, to take his stand on the truth of God and of God's Word. And maybe one thing we can take away from today's passage is the importance of maintaining our relationship with God just through our own personal spiritual disciplines of prayer of the study of God's Word, of regular participation in worship in the life of the church as we are able. And uh, Jeremiah is a great example for that. How can we stand for God unless we're spending time with God in prayer and in the Word? Okay, thank you, Phil. Now let's open our Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 41 and hear God's Word for us today. When I was in high school, I spent most of my autumn Friday evenings in a crowded press box announcing the football play-by-play for the Falcons of Wheaton North High School. One of the things that my listeners often heard was shouting, not usually from me, but from the football coaches who were also watching the football game from the press box. And football coaches have a way of sort of sensing disaster just before it happens. And so the quarterback would drop back to pass, and the coaches would say, No! Don't throw it! And it never did any good, of course. Yelling rarely does, but it did seem to make them feel better. Now, Jeremiah in this passage is a bit like a frustrated football coach on his way down to Egypt. He kept telling his people, No! Don't do it! Please! Whatever you do, don't go down to Egypt. But it didn't do any good. Despite Jeremiah's many warnings and protests, the Jews went right on down to Egypt anyway. And we notice at the end of chapter 41 that they started making their fatal mistake before they even realized what they were doing. They were refugees, you may remember, who had witnessed the fall of Jerusalem and all the atrocities of war, and now they are just a remnant of their former selves. As their leader says in 
Chapter 42, verse 2, though we were once many, now only a few are left. This Jewish remnant was so small that they feared for their very lives. And so Yohanan led away all the survivors and they went on, this is the end of chapter 41, verse 16, stopping near Bethlehem on their way to Egypt to escape the Babylonians. They were afraid of them because Ishmael had killed Gedaliah, whom the king of Babylon had appointed as governor over the land. And there is a sense in which the Jews had good reason to be afraid. Surely when the Babylonians found out that their own governor had been killed, there were bound to be reprisals. So before the Babylonians had a chance to retaliate, the Jews decided to run back to Egypt, back to the land of slavery, back to the house of bondage. They wanted to return to the place of their exodus under Moses. It was almost as if they were trying to undo their salvation. Going back to Egypt had fatal mistake written all over it. Nevertheless, the Jews were already halfway out the door. They were already partway down to Egypt where Jeremiah had often warned them not to go. Maybe, they thought, maybe just this once, it would be okay to go down to Egypt for a little while. And they had traveled about five miles down the road when they started having second thoughts. Should we stay, they asked, or should we go? Since they were unsure what they should do, they decided to consult God's prophet Jeremiah. Please hear our petition and pray to the Lord your God for this entire remnant. Pray that the Lord... Your God will tell us where we should go and what we should do. Now, asking God what to do when you don't know what to do is always the right thing to do. What does God want me to do with my life? What does he want me to study? Where does he want me to work? Whom should I marry or should I even get married? Those are all important questions. The trouble is that many people don't start asking some of those questions until they are halfway down to Egypt. I've already made up my mind, but by the way, Lord, what is it that you would like me to do? You see, many people only pretend that they want to know God's will for their lives. What they really want is God's rubber stamp on the decision that they have already made. They start to act before they begin to pray. That's one problem with this prayer. There's another problem with the refugees, and that is that they do not or cannot pray for themselves. They tell Jeremiah, pray to the Lord, your God. And Jeremiah corrects them, of course. He says, I will certainly pray to the Lord, your God. And later the remnant does speak of the Lord, our God. But still, this use of the second person is very unsettling. The people have to get someone else to pray for them. They don't have a warm, personal, intimate relationship with God. Well, they believe in Him in a sort of general way. They believe in His existence. They think He is somewhere out there. But they are not close enough to God to engage in meaningful prayer. You know, prayer is one of the best tests of the quality of your relationship with God. Do you pray? Do you know how to pray? If not, it may be because God is not your God. 
You see, because of our sin, we are God's enemies from the very beginning. And the only way to become God's friend is through faith in Jesus Christ. That is why God sent His only Son, Jesus Christ. He sent Him to die for our sins on the cross so that we could become friends of God. Once you believe that Jesus died for your sins, then you enter into this wonderful friendship, this wonderful relationship with God. And you're heart opens up to God and His heart is opened up before you. And so you can come to Him in prayer. You're able to communicate with Him. This only happens through faith in Jesus Christ, which is why Christians always pray in Jesus' name. If you find that you don't have that kind of intimacy with God through prayer, then the first question to ask is whether God has become your God through faith in Jesus Christ. So there were these two problems with the prayer that the Jews offered. The prayer was late, and it was offered by a third party. But at least they knew what to pray for. Their prayer itself is a good one. Anyone who wants to know the will of God for life should pray like this. Tell us where we should go and what we should do, verse 3. You know, that would be a good prayer to offer every day. In fact, Christians pray like this whenever they pray in the words of the Lord's Prayer, Thy will be done. Praying for God's will to be done is a way of praying that you will go where God wants you to go and do what God wants you to do. Now in this case, the Jews not only prayed for God's will to be done, they promised to do it themselves. They covenanted in the presence of God to obey Him no matter what. May the Lord Himself be a true and faithful witness against us if we do not act in accordance with everything the Lord your God sends you to tell us. Whether it is favorable or unfavorable, we will obey the Lord our God. We will obey the Lord our God. This is a good model for how to discover God's will for your life. Pray for guidance. Seek the Word of God, which... Today means reading your Bible rather than consulting a prophet. And then vow to do whatever the Lord says, no matter what. Now, once the remnant of the Jews sought God's will in this way, God revealed His will for their lives. He, As we read in verse 7, ten days later, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. And when all the people were assembled, he said, basically, and I'm paraphrasing here, do not go to Egypt do not collect 200. If they go to Egypt, the Babylonians will hunt them down and destroy them. But if they stay in in Judah, they will live in peace. Now, what decision could be easier than that? According to Jeremiah, the upside of staying in Judah was tremendous. This is what the Lord says, if you stay in this land, I will build you up. I will plant you. Don't be afraid. For I am with you and will save you and deliver you. I will show you compassion. These promises even echo the call of Jeremiah back in chapter 1 when God appointed him over nations and kingdoms not only to uproot and tear down as he has been doing for some 40 chapters, but now also to build and to plant. Jerusalem has been burned to the ground, the Jews have nothing to fear. God will plant them back in their land. God will keep them safe. He will shower them with His compassion, provided that they obey Him. 
Unfortunately, obeying God is not what this remnant had in mind. God knows exactly what they are thinking. No matter how nice this benefit package sounds, we will not stay in this land. Verse 14, no, we will go and live in Egypt where we will not see war or hear the trumpet or be hungry for bread. Now, humanly speaking, escaping to Egypt was the best foreign policy. Egypt was in this safe neighborhood, far, far away from Babylon. They could put some distance between themselves and their enemies. Plus, the Egyptians had plenty of food. So going down to Egypt made plenty of sense. There was only just one little problem with that idea. And it was that it was against the express will of God. This is what the Lord Almighty says, If you are determined to go to Egypt, then the sword you fear will overtake you there, and the famine you dread will follow you into Egypt, and there you will die. Just as my anger and wrath have been poured out on Jerusalem, so will my wrath be poured out on Egypt. You see, disaster will follow them right down into Egypt. Everything that happened in Jerusalem will happen again on the Nile. Sword, fear, famine, death, plague, disaster, wrath, horror, and condemnation. The very words that were used to describe the fall of Jerusalem are now used to describe the judgment that will fall upon these people in Egypt. In fact, judgment is so certain that Jeremiah calls it a fatal mistake. Oh, Remnant of Judah, he says in verse 9, you made a fatal mistake when you sent me to the Lord your God and said, pray to the Lord our God for us. Tell us everything he says and we will do it. For I have told you today, but you still have not obeyed the Lord your God. Now, do you understand the kind of choice that the remnant had to make? One option, staying up in Judah, seemed dangerous. There were lots of enemies. There wasn't very much food. By contrast, the alternative of going down into Egypt seemed really smart. There weren't any enemies down there. There was lots of food. However, God knew that things would turn out exactly the opposite of what they expected. The risky choice was really perfectly safe, and the easy way out was deadly. And so you see, in order to make the right decision, God's people had to put all of their trust in God. Making the right choice meant living by faith rather than by their own instincts or by their own wits. And so you see that we face exactly the same kinds of spiritual decisions in daily life. You know, many things that seem risky are actually quite safe. It is safe to go into the jungle to do mission work. It is safe to take a vow of marital faithfulness until the day of death. It is safe to raise a family in this culture. It is safe to give away your money to the poor. All of these things are safe to do, provided that they are done in obedience to the will of God. No matter how frightening it may seem at the time, it is always safest to trust and to obey God. And of course, by contrast, many things that seem to many people to be harmless are actually fatal mistakes in the end. What is the harm in laughing at a vulgar joke told 
by one of your classmates or one of your coworkers? What is the harm in engaging in a little bit of sexual activity before marriage? What harm will it do to steal some tape and some post-it notes from your corporation? What harm could it possibly be to cheat on your lab work? You see, many of these things may sound relatively harmless, but they are no more safe than so-called safe sex. Disobeying God always has fatal side effects, spiritually speaking. Living for yourself always backfires. Sin leads to death, not to life. It leads to pain and not to pleasure. And in the end, the remnant of the Jews decided to go their own way. They were a little bit like the friend who asks you for some constructive criticism. Don't just tell me what I'm doing right. I want to know what I can do to improve. Tell me what you really think. But then, as soon as you start to tell your friend what you do really think, he gets so angry that you wish you hadn't. And in the same way, when Jeremiah said, No, stop, don't do it, the remnant was outraged by what he said. Davidson calls their response blunt, angry, and insolent. Chapter 43, verse 1, When Jeremiah finished telling the people everything the Lord had sent him to tell them, Azariah and Johanan and all the arrogant men said to Jeremiah, You are lying. The Lord our God has not sent you to say you must not go to Egypt to settle there. But Baruch is inciting you against us to hand us over to the Babylonians. And so you see the way that the leaders of the remnant had already made up their minds. They refused to listen to God's prophet, even though he had a flawless record of fulfilled prophecy. It never occurred to them that God's plans might just be a little bit different from their plans. And so when they asked for spiritual guidance in the first place, they were just fooling themselves. They were only willing to follow God as long as God was planning to go in their direction. And you see, the trouble with a God who never disapproves of where you go or what you do is that he is no God at all. The real God is much too wise and much too holy to do that. Often, your plans don't fit into his agenda. They are either too foolish or too sinful. So do not be like this remnant who assume that God sits up in heaven just waiting to do what you want him to do. Kidner says, do not regard God as a power to enlist rather than as a Lord to obey. And that, of course, is exactly what the remnant did. To paraphrase the old hymn, they went off to Egypt singing, Have mine own way, Lord. Have mine own way. I am the potter. Thou art the clay. This is what John Calvin says should be learned from the remnant who neither trusted nor obeyed. We have then here set before us the hypocrisy of that people, so that we may learn that whenever we ask what pleases God, we should bring a pure and sincere heart so that nothing may prevent or hinder us immediately to embrace whatever God may command us. Now, I want to point out that this unrighteous remnant had two objections to Jeremiah's prophecy. 
And I point them out because they are the same objections that people use against the Word of God to this very day. First, they denied that it was the Word of God. They said, you are lying. The Lord our God has not sent you to say. And in the same way, many people deny that the Bible is the Word of God. They have their own ideas about what God is like and what he might say, and then they judge the Bible according to their own standards. They read, for example, what the Bible teaches about the wrath of God against sin, and they say, oh, no, our God would never say anything like that. Our God is a God of love. He would never punish sin. Or then a second strategy for rejecting God's word, and that is to say that it is only man's word. And that's what the remnant did. They blamed Jeremiah's prophecy on his secretary. Baruch is inciting you against us. And in the same way, many people say the Bible is no different than any other ancient literature. It is a an interesting collection of stories and opinions, but it is only a record of human thought. There's nothing divine or supernatural about it. So when they turn to the New Testament teaching on the incarnation of Jesus Christ or on sexuality or on the role of women in the church, they say that was only cultural. That was just Paul's opinion for Paul's time. Yet the truth is that the Bible is God's opinion for all time. All Scripture is God-breathed. It is the Word of God written. The Holy Spirit has used the experiences and talents of the biblical authors to set down the very thoughts and commands of God on the pages of the Bible. And so Peter says, above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And if that is true, since that is true, then the Bible is only ignored at one's peril. The way to eternal life is found in the Bible and nowhere else. Where else will you discover that you are a sinner guilty of eternal judgment? Where else will you read that Christ died on the cross for your sins? Where else will you learn that he was raised again for your justification? And where else will you discover that you are offered salvation in and through Jesus Christ? Nowhere else. Nowhere else will you read or learn or discover these things. And that is why rejecting the Word of God will prove to be a fatal mistake. Now, when the remnant of the Jews made their fatal mistake, they were writing their own death sentence. Sadly, we read in chapter 43, verse 4, that the people disobeyed the Lord's command to stay in the land of Judah So they entered Egypt, verse 7, in disobedience to the Lord and went as far as Tapanes. When the remnant arrived there in the Nile Delta, they were greeted with another gloomy prophecy from Jeremiah. While the Jews were watching, he took some large stones and he buried them in the pavement in front of the royal palace in the entrance of the Pharaoh's palace. The point of this object lesson was that the rulers of Babylon were going to come all the way down to Egypt and set up camp on those very stones. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, will set his throne over these stones I have buried here. He will spread his royal canopy above them. 
Harrison says, though, the Judean refugees have buried themselves in populous Egypt, they will be discovered and feel the weight of Babylonian might. And then Jeremiah went on to describe Egypt's defeat in graphic detail. Nebuchadnezzar will come and attack Egypt. He will demolish the sacred pillars and will burn down the temples of the gods of Egypt. The image we read of the shepherd in verse 12 is especially vivid. Literally, the text reads, As a shepherd picks his clothes clean of lice, so the king of Babylon will pick the land of Egypt clean. That is just what happened. The fragment of an ancient text still preserved describes how in the 37th year, that is to say 586 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, marched against Egypt to deliver a battle. And when he arrived, what he did, in effect, was to de-louse Egypt. As Kidner states, Egypt's impressive temples and gods and obelisks would prove to be merely portable or breakable. Those idols and obelisks from the sun god of Egypt, which still exist, most of them, now decorate the museums of Europe. This was a sad ending to a sad story. It is a story of willful disobedience to the revealed will of God. These people knew the will of God for their lives, but they rejected it because they thought they knew better. And there is, therefore, a biblical proverb which aptly describes this kind of fatal mistake. There is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it leads to death. There is, I believe, only one ray of hope in this story, in this tragic account. And it comes in verse 6 of chapter 43, where the Bible lists some of the men and women who traveled down to Egypt. And among them were Jeremiah the prophet and Baruch, son of Neriah. We have in this verse a remarkable statement of loyalty to the people of God. For you see, Jeremiah did not have to go to Egypt. In fact, he had had several opportunities to go elsewhere. As we read in chapter 41, just months before, the Babylonians had offered him an all-expense-paid trip back to Babylon. But this great prophet was so devoted to God's people that he rejected the retirement which the Babylonians were offering him. He preferred to join the remnant of God's people than to walk on the plush carpets of Babylon. He stayed with them, even in their disobedience, even when it seemed to be beneath his dignity. These people were not pilgrims. They were not captives. They were only traitors and deserters. To live with such cowards may have been the most courageous thing that Jeremiah ever did. It was the proof of his love for God and for God's people. Jeremiah's loyalty is thus a lesson for everyone who belongs to the church. There are always people in the church who, like the remnant who went down to Egypt, are hard to love. It may be that there is someone in your Bible study who is irritating, someone in your ministry who has a way of saying the wrong thing at the wrong time. 
It's even possible, perhaps likely, that someone in the church at one time or another has mistreated you. But if you claim to know the Lord Jesus Christ, then you must love the unlovely. Of course, the reason for this is that the Lord Jesus himself gave his life for tax collectors and prostitutes and all manner of sinners, yourself included. This lesson of Jeremiah's loyalty is a particular challenge for everyone who is thinking about leaving a local church. You know the kinds of things people say, the church isn't meeting my needs anymore. I don't like the pastor. I don't care for the snacks. Everything seems so dead. The music doesn't minister to me. And it is true, of course, that many Christian congregations are weak and ineffective. Some are apostate, and in that case, it means that there are some occasions when changing churches is the right thing to do. But there is something wonderful to be said for being loyal to God's people, not because they are perfect, but because they are sinners saved by grace. You know, the great German theologian and pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer once made a decision very similar to the decision Jeremiah made in this chapter. Bonhoeffer was an outspoken critic of the Nazis almost from the very beginning, and gradually they took away his freedoms. He was forbidden to lecture at the university. Eventually, the doors of his theological institute were closed. And during that time period, Bonhoeffer was offered a teaching post in New York. And it seemed at the time like the perfect opportunity to escape the troubles in Germany and to come to America, and so he did in the year 1939. And yet, less than a month after he arrived, he suddenly turned back home and returned to Germany. And this is how he explained his change of heart. I have had time to think and to pray about my situation and that of my nation and to have God's will for me clarified. And I have come to the conclusion that I have made a mistake in coming to America. I shall have no right to participate in the reconstruction of the Christian life in Germany after the war if I did not share in the trials of this time with my people." And as you may know, not long after his return, Bonhoeffer was imprisoned, sent to a concentration camp, and eventually gunned down by a firing squad. Now, some might say that Dietrich Bonhoeffer made a fatal mistake. And yet, in the light of eternity, it will prove to be one of the best decisions that he ever made. For God rewards all those who trust and obey him, He rewards them with eternal life, even when it seems at the time that what they are doing is very risky. Some things that seemed risky at the time in heaven will prove to have been perfectly safe all along. And in hell, by contrast, many things which seemed very harmless at the time will prove to have been perfectly deadly. And so everyone who wants to avoid a fatal mistake ought rather to trust God and to obey the will of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we give you praise for the lessons of Scripture, and we confess that we are among those who, for the most part, go about our own plans without ever considering your plans. We ask that you might teach us how to be men and women of prayer who seek your will, 
and then especially those who are willing to follow your will even when it proves to be most difficult to do so. We pray for courage. We pray for faithfulness. And we pray for it in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You have been listening to Every Last Word, a ministry of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, featuring the Bible teaching of Dr. Philip Graham Riken. We appreciate your ongoing support of this broadcast ministry. The Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals exists to promote a biblical understanding and worldview. Drawing upon the insight and wisdom of Reformation theologians from decades, even centuries gone by, we seek to provide contemporary Christian teaching that will equip believers to understand and meet the challenges and opportunities of our time and place. The Alliance also produces the radio broadcasts The Bible Study Hour, featuring the teaching of the late Dr. James Montgomery Boyce, and Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible, featuring the Bible teaching of the late Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse. For a full list of radio stations carrying our programs, please visit our website at www.alliancenet.org. Every last word continues through your generous gifts and financial support. If you would like to see this program continue to benefit others as it has benefited you, please prayerfully consider becoming a friend of the Alliance. For more information or to make a contribution, please contact us by calling toll-free 1-800-488-1888. You can also send us a gift by writing to Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, Box 2000, Philadelphia, PA, 19103. Or you can visit us online at www.alliancenet.org. Be sure to ask for a free resource catalog featuring books, audio teachings, commentaries, booklets, videos, and a wealth of other materials from outstanding Reformed teachers and theologians. Thank you again for your continued support and for listening to Every Last Word.